It's Friday, March 11, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavroides, Senior Writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California politics and policy in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel, and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program and Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Hanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. A good day, gentlemen. Uh, let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, there's a lot to talk about today. Um, on Tuesday, California Governor Gavin Newsom gave his State of the State address. In the speech, uh, the governor touted the California way, quote unquote, of doing things. Quote, I think all of us, at least here, can agree that people have always looked for California for inspiration. Now in the midst of so much turmoil with, sta- with stacking stresses and dramatic social and economic change, California is doing what we've done for generations, lighting out for the territory ahead of the rest, expanding the horizon of what's possible, the governor's quote unquote said. Uh, This begs the question, uh, Lee and Bill, with so many people and businesses leaving the state, is California still leading the way or being left behind? Uh, And Bill and Lee, could you also share your uh, general thoughts about the address? Let's Let's start with you, Bill. Yeah, let me go first, and I want Lee to get into especially the economic nitty gritty here. Um, this was uh, kind of the anti-Gavin Gavin state of the state in several regards. First of all, 18 minutes in length. Um, that is almost criminally, criminally bad for a governor. You're, uh, you're tasked with uh, giving the state of a nation state of 40 million people, and you spent 18 minutes on the whole topic. Uh, on top of that, he uh, spent a lot of time talking about things not necessarily germane to California. Uh, Joe Garofoli, who's a uh, political writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, called him the uh, Rick Steves of governors because he just took us on this tour of Ukraine. And then he took us into Florida where he said, you can't say the word gay. That's the uh, the uh, the so-called don't say gay bill that uh, was a big source of controversy. He took us to Texas where he said, quote, you can sue your history teacher for teaching history. But Leah Jonathan, he didn't spend much time talking about the state of California. Um, now, it, the speech is unusual in this regard. I, I wrote these uh, vehicles back in the 1990s for Pete Wilson. He was governor. We always did ours in the first week of January uh, for two reasons. Number one, we wanted to just kind of set the tone uh, for the legislative year, get the jump on the legislature. And secondly, uh, Wilson was the governor at the time when there were about 29 other Republican governors, all pretty much preaching the same gospel of welfare reform and lower taxes and you know better business climates and so on and so forth. Newsom, uh, this is the second time in a row he's done it in March. You might remember he did it last year in, the, in an empty Dodger stadium. Uh, but again, what I'm shocked by is just the um, only 18 minutes he devoted to this. Lee, he barely mentioned crime. Um, he didn't talk much about homelessness, but he had a big homelessness announcement the week before. Now, Lee, he did talk about relief in terms of gases, uh, gas prices and uh, trying to help uh, taxpayers. But What's interesting is if you look at the prepared remarks versus what he delivered, um, he did not talk about a rebate. He took away the word rebate and just said that we're going to do something for taxpayers. 
But then Lee, he did something kind of intellectually dishonest. I want to get your thoughts on this too. He boasted about how they did a major tax relief for the middle class last year. Um, but if the devil's in the details, Lee, the tax relief that he did was for people making less than $75,000 in California. I did a little sleuthing earlier today on uh, the middle class existence in uh, Los Angeles County. Uh, this is courtesy of the Pew Research Center, which uh, does an income calculator. Here's what they consider the middle class to be in Orange slash Los Angeles counties. It's an individual making anywhere from about $32,700 to $98,300 a year. For a couple, it goes up to about $139,000. For a family of four, the starting point for middle class is about $65,000 going all the way up to almost $200,000. So Lee, if you're talking about middle class tax relief, the governor is going for a very small sliver of the middle class of California here. So Anyway, collectively, you just add this up, and this is a very just weak performance by a governor who is ironically in a very strong position for re-election. This is the same Gavin Newsom, by the way, gentlemen, who back when he was mayor of San Francisco was tasked with giving a state of the city address in 2008. He spent seven and a half hours talking about the state of his city, but instead California gets a, a mere 18 minutes. Shame on the governor. <laughs> Lee, your thoughts. Bill, I, I I agree. I agree with you. It well, I I found I found the speech. I mean, personally, I found the speech almost bizarre. Um, not only in its brevity, but uh, and not only in its lack of content, but also in, in the things he did manage to say in those few minutes that that he was speaking. The um, you know, the speech began, um, I thought about as strangely as it could when he referred to, uh, I wrote it down here, um, when he referred to reaffirming our commitment to democratic institutions were plagued by agents of a national anger machine, fueling division, weaponizing grievance, conjuring conspiracies and exploiting the anger of the anxious. I mean, what a way to begin a state of the st- a state of the state speech, worrying about the country's democratic institutions, and you know what 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 I also found bizarre is that you know this very same <clears throat> this very same anger machine that he's referring to is being presented in a state of the state to score easy political points, and it's obviously aimed at Trump. Uh, but Trump's been out of office now for fifteen months, so. It strikes me as so strange that he would choose to spend his time on topics like that, rather than focusing on the major issues of the state and what you and I would think to be good politics. What are the what are the achievements? What has his leadership brought forward? How has he brought the state together? Um, and but not only that, that anger machine that he references was running full throttle last fall when he faced recall and Larry Elder's portrayed as you know, the black face of white supremacy and the second coming of Trump. Uh, I mean, Newsom played that to the hilt. So I found the beginning of the speech um, you know, almost bizarre. In terms of economics, he, um, he glossed over almost uh, everything or it wasn't, even, it wasn't even mentioned. It was a it really was almost struck me as a re-election speech. Um, That's exactly what it was. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, in, in one in which, uh, you know, he thanked his wife who does so much for the people of California and he thanked some of his Democratic colleagues. Right. You know, not once did he ever mention, as, as lawmakers have in the past, uh, pay taxpayers thanks. Thanks for making those sacrifices so we can help support so we can help support you in terms of what we do. 
Um, and Bill, I don't know, I found, I found the comparison in which he tried to recall the previous glories of California uh, with, his Cal, you know, with his California way, which he mentioned, I don't know, right. at least four or five times. I found that to just completely fall flat. The, the California of yesteryear was one that was led by an innovative and creative private sector that was supported by a functional and efficient and sensible state government. Uh, that's been turned on its head. Today we have, today the state is, in my opinion, government heavy. It overtaxes, it overregulates. Innovative businesses remain in California, but you know there wasn't one word about so many of those innovative businesses leaving, or so many households leaving, such that California lost a seat in the House of Representatives. So um, I, right. I, I found the whole thing just just strange. So here, so here's what I think he's doing, Lee. Gavin Newsom thrives when he has a foil. Uh, for the first couple of years in office, he had the gift from God, which is Donald Trump. Then Trump leaves office, and then he gets, ironically, another gift. He is threatened with recall, but then that presents Larry Elder, which allows him to go back to Donald Trump again. But now Larry Elder is not going to run for governor again. We can get to that in a couple of minutes if you want to. And so he's casting about for a foil. And so that's why you bring up Ron DeSantis in Florida. That's why you bring up Rick Perry in, uh, in Texas and talk about those awful Republican governors are doing there. He needs a foil. He needs a foil, Lee and Jonathan, because when the referendum is on Gavin Newsom himself, Gavin Newsom struggles. Let me throw some poll numbers at you to, to consider this. First of all, for talking about how great things are in California, uh, UC Berkeley's IGS poll released last month, last month 54% of registered Californians uh, feel the state is moving in the wrong direction. That's the right track, wrong track, 54% wrong track. Only 34% of the voters feel that California's headed in the right way. Then they started asking voters about Governor Newsom himself. Uh, 51% of voters uh, think that Newsom is doing a bad job on crime. 51% thinks he's doing a, a lousy job on homelessness, um, uh, up from 35% who felt the same way September of 2020. Um, this is a governor who's struggling with this job, plain and simple. But Lee, here's what struck me when talking about the California economy and talking about how great things are. There's a word left out of that speech, which I'd like you to address, unemployment. Unemployment. So... Since the COVID shutdown peaked last year, obviously every state has seen economic activity return and unemployment fall and the number of jobs uh, increase. Mm -hmm. And um, whenever there's a recession, including, including what effectively was a government engineered recession due to COVID, California almost always has the highest unemployment rate in the country. Mm -hmm. This particular time, California was 48th behind Hawaii and Nevada, which of course are somewhat one-offs, two-offs due to the heavy reliance of their economy on travel and leisure and tourism. So California was sitting with a much, much higher unemployment rate than nearly every other state. And Newsom always liked to talk about, well, how fast we're coming back. Right. Well, the, folly, the farther you fall, the faster you come back, all things equal. And you'll never hear Newsom ever refer to the fact that California remains as one of the highest unemployment states in the country. I think now we're 49th at 6.5%. I think only Hawaii has a higher unemployment rate. And of course, Hawaii is, is all about, it's all about tourism. Right. So yeah, it, it's it's almost as if uh, and Bill, some yeah some 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 of the stuff we're talking about here will be in my um, California on your mind column 
next week. Um, so much for shameless uh, self-promotion. But um, he seems to live in a very different world than most other people in California. And he always has. Right. Newsom has always lived in a very, very different world. Um, and, you know, he... I, I don't under, I don't understand his approach to even talking about issues because he likes to talk about everything. There's never really a prioritization. Um, he wants to talk about everything. He wants to talk about crime and homelessness and jobs, and he wants to talk about clean energy. He wants to talk about forest fires. He wants to talk about everything. And he likes to talk about how much money has been spent on, on different issues. But you never hear him talk about outcomes. You never even talk about the fact that nearly $13 billion was spent on homelessness since he took office and homelessness has got substantially worse. Um, you don't hear about the fact that we haven't had major water infrastructure built since probably the 1970s, that this stuff just doesn't ever. And, and you know, Bill, I don't know, I, I'd appreciate your views on this, given your background. Given, given how much you know about politics, but I would, if he's thinking of a national spotlight in terms of running for office at the Senate level or for president, wouldn't it be better for him to say, you know what, there's some stuff that's not working and we're going to make some progress on this, as opposed to just extolling all the money California continues to spend and, hey, look at me. Isn't this great? Isn't this a great state to live in? It works for me. It works for me and my family. Wouldn't it be better for him to sort of pick one or two significant problems and try to make progress on those and then focus on those achievements? I think it would leave if he were interested in the business of collecting 270 electoral votes. But if he is just thinking about how to become a Democratic presidential nominee, he's probably on the right path to this kind of rhetoric, because what do we know about Democratic politics these days? There's a lot of restlessness on the left. They're looking for a champion. They're looking for a fighter. They're looking for somebody to kind of do a reverse DeSantis and take the fight to him and also take the fight to Texas. So I would say, um, what is the famous line that Pat Moynihan had about welfare reform? He called it, what, boob bait for Bubba? And uh, this is kind of sort of a boob bait for Bubba speech, if you will, for progressive Bubba's in that regard. But um, I'd like to underscore, gentlemen, also what an odd time it is in Sacramento. So today uh, is the filing deadline for uh, races in California, and the governor's race is pretty much uh, taken shape now. Newsom's obviously seeking a second term. Uh, none of the higher profile recall candidates from last year's race. This is Larry Elder, Kevin Faulkner, uh, John Cox, Assemblyman Kevin Kiley. None of them are jumping in. They've all decided to stay out. Instead, Newsom is running against um, one independent. That's Michael Schellenberger, who uh, our listeners might uh, know he wrote the book San Francisco. Uh, he's running as an NPP, uh, an independent. Uh, also in the race is uh, State Senator Brian Dahl. He comes from the uh, first district, which is northeast of Sacramento. It's a lot of timber and forest up there and a lot of angry Newsom voters, but uh, he's not very high profile. And the third candidate, Sean Collins, the Republican from uh, Orange County. He's an attorney, also served in the Navy at one point. Interestingly enough, he was going to run in the 45th Congressional District and then decided not to run there. So California being countercurrent, he decides to run for the biggest race of them all, Governor. So anyway, if I'm new, so I'm looking at that field, I'm not necessarily feeling threatened. Uh, also, given the history of California politics, the last first term governor denied a second term was uh, Colbert Olson back in 1942. So Newsom's on pretty solid ground politically. But here's where things get even stranger, guys. Uh, the legislature, there are now uh, 35 state lawmakers who plan to retire at the end of this session. That's one fourth of the body all 
uh, all calling it a day. Some of this is driven by term limits, but this is also a lot of lawmakers looking for greener pastures. They've either snagged appointments or they've decided to resign or just decided to run for another office, be it House or statewide. With all that turnover and a governor looking at a pretty easy reelect, I don't want to say laziness has kicked in, but I think, Lee, this is how you end up doing 18-minute state of the states. You just do kind of you do kind of mail it in. And again, what was lacking from the speech, which surprised me going back to those numbers that I, I read you guys from IGS, voters have a lot of concerns about the direction of the state. And if ever there were a good time for the governor to stand up and try to buck up the legislature and challenge them to rise to the occasion, this would be it. But he didn't do that in the precious 18 minutes that he devoted to it. But I think this is the problem What comes from having a political monopoly in California. You just, you just don't give a darn what the public thinks. Yeah, yeah, uh, ab- absolutely. And you know, he's running into a problem within his own party in terms of those who are heavy on climate change and who want to push the state as fast as it can go to reduce carbon emissions. And then you know, the labor component of the party uh, in which an awful lot of people are being hit by, <laughs> are being hit by gas prices that um, at least in, in nominal terms, not adjusting for inflation are, are higher than they've ever been. Um, I mean, we're now, uh, at least in, my, in, in the area I live in, gas prices are over $6 a gallon. Right. So, Bill, you mentioned that, um, you know, he's kind of, he's making references to providing some type of tax relief. And he spoke glowingly about how he provided tax relief um, for those middle income earners in which he, he really didn't. Um, sure. Um, it was really to low-income households um, who absolutely are struggling. Um, but as we know, the bulk of taxes are paid by the very, very top end in California. And when we think about trying to provide some relief for people, he made a bit of a vague reference to some type of so, some additional tax rebate. Um, I suspect, uh, I don't know, I suspect that's probably going to, that's probably going to go um, but at the same time, if we think about, you know, all those people you mentioned who are saying, hey, it's expensive to live here, job creation um, uh, and compensation, job compensation is not high enough for people to afford to buy a house. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at some of the things, again, that he touted in his speech, and he talked about spending how California has spent um over $38 billion on climate investments. Mm -hmm. And when you think about representing the priorities of people within the state, I think on the one hand, we all want to have a healthy environment going forward for our kids and grandchildren and future Mm -hmm. generations. But at the same time, carbon emissions are a global problem. California is responsible for less than 1%. We cannot move the needle. And the continued emphasis by Newsom, for example, he was referring to oil companies what petro dictators. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know that was that that was that, that was a bit out of left field. Um, California can't make any difference on its own, and these thirty-eight billion and and the idea that oh, California is going to be the leader in climate change. Um, no, this is not a good idea. This is pure virtue signaling. This is making the progressive, highly elites, highly wealthy elites happy, but it's not moving the needle. It never will move the needle. This is a global issue. 
Right. And these $38 billion of investments are coming from tax dollars and are providing literally zero benefit to most yep. uh, to most taxpayers. So yep. again, he just he strikes me as a guy who's just living in a different state. Well, than this, most, is, than most this, this is how you get a majority of Californians taking the states on the wrong track. You stand up there and right, you trash petro dictators. You say you're not going to drill for oil anymore in California. There are, by the way, about a thousand uh, requests to drill in California sitting with the state agency right now. They could approve tomorrow, but they will not. Uh, oil is just as dead as that could be in California. But for all this pontificating about uh, going clean and going green, here's the problem, guys. It's going to get hot in California this summer. And you know what? I hate to be the prognosticator of bad news. We're going to have an electricity problem again because we the demand will not uh, the supply will not meet the demand. And the problem is electricity is generated by one third by renewables. The rest comes from other sources, including fossil fuels. And so you may want to talk about kind of a utopia of 10, 20, 30 years from now where everything is uh, running on EVs and renewables. But he's not living in the here and now. So again, if I'm a Californian and I hear all this wonderful talk, but then a few months later when it gets hot and my electricity goes off, I'm just wondering what's going on here. Why are we Venezuela? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the um, it's the 21st century. California is arguably the most technologically advanced state in the most technologically advanced world in the country. And yet there will be brownouts, there will be blackouts. Electricity has become unreliable in the state because we have doubled down so much on renewables uh, and obviously for the purpose of reducing carbon emissions. But this, the, those, those who maintain the state's electricity grid face the ever increasingly important challenge of trying to manage demand when the sun goes down and when all those people and families come back home from their jobs around 5 or 6 or 4, 4 p.m. And oftentimes those brownouts are occurring right around that time because they simply, those, those grid operators simply can't balance the transition from solar, which is decaying because the sun's going down to, to gas. And um, it's, a it's a difficult balancing act. And we, we have a situation where California has so much renewables in the middle of the day we actually pay states like Arizona and Texas to take that excess electricity off our hands, lest it blows out the grid. So you sort again, you look at this and you scratch your head and you ask yourself, well, you know, are we doing this right? That we have an electricity grid where we pay other states to take off the surplus production at midday, and then we risk brownouts at the end of the day when the sun goes down and we can't balance the transition back to fossil fuels. And so right. what's happened is I think almost every elect electric utility in the country, in the, uh, in the state now, is sharply increasing rates between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. Um, and that's exactly when these families come home from jobs and from schools and so forth. And again, this is... Um, this is heavy on virtue signaling. Uh, again, California can't move the carbon needle on its own, but it ends up costing a lot of people who get literally zero from, yeah. from California's claims and, and the tip of the hat about, about, about being leaders in climate. So just, again, it just sort of, no matter where you are on the, on the spectrum of green energy and climate change, this simply is inefficient. It's not a good idea. It's, we're, we're burning money. In the, in the name of simply virtue signaling and saying, hey, we're the leaders. 
Yeah. You know, besides that, if you if you got if you make seventy five thousand dollars and maybe got a few nickels and dimes back from Sacramento last year, you still can't afford to buy a Tesla. Trust me, I've been pricing them lately. But you know, Jonathan, one thing I thought was missing in the speech was a lot of serious talk about education. And here I think of Newsom really wanted to kind of get in touch with the sort of angry, disappointed side of the California electorate. I think you could have tapped into what Lee wrote about California on your mind this week. Yeah, uh, Lee, um, you wrote about um, in your column this week, you wrote about how California high school students will be required by state law to take courses on ethnic studies. Uh, You write that it's a very flawed curriculum, um, but it's an improvement over the first draft. Could you describe some of the flaws and some of the social implications it has for the California classroom? Yeah, yeah. So long story short, in 16, um, the Senate passed a bill, well, well, the Senate Assembly passed a bill uh, requiring that California schools come up with an ethnic studies curriculum. So California is now the first state to require ethnic studies. Many, many schools throughout the state are already teaching ethnic studies and in other states teaching ethnic studies, but California is the first state to require that. And in a very, very uh, politicized and very public approach, the Department of Education commissioned a group of ethnic studies teachers at, uh, at universities and, um, and in high schools for, uh, to come up with a model curriculum. And a first draft was submitted uh, back in 2018, so about almost four years ago. And uh, that draft was criticized in editorials in the Washington Post and the LA Times as being biased, unbalanced, um, divisive, and highly anti-Semitic. And there were a number of Jewish um, uh, activist groups that wrote to Newsom, that wrote to the California Department of Education. <clears throat> 100,000 people wrote to the California Department of Education about this first draft. So fast forward, we get a second draft. That remains deeply flawed, um, biased, uh, factually incorrect, continues to be anti-Semitic. Newsom even called it anti-Semitic. We get a third draft, still unacceptable. We finally get a fourth draft. The Department of Education pretty much throws up their hands. It's better than, it's better than, the very inflammatory identity politics heavy drafts that were submitted beforehand. But, you know, the idea of teaching ethnic studies as a way to bring kids together to help people understand and appreciate people's differences, different cultures, different sociological perspectives. This was still missing from the draft for a model curriculum that the California Department of Education finally um, finally uh, agreed to. Now, in the last year, what has been happening is that some of the folks who wrote that first draft formed an organization called Liberated Ethnic Studies. And they've essentially gone back to that highly divisive, extremely politicized, um, in some ways factually incorrect approach to teaching ethnic studies, which is you know, pretty much 100% is all about race, is all about race. And there's nothing, re- and living in America, if you're a black person or a brown person, there's really nothing to celebrate. Uh, it's all about race, it's all about racism. Um, and the University of California has a six person faculty working group 
UC is going to require kids to enter UC to have an ethnic studies course. And it can't just be any ethnic studies course. There's a proposal within UC that it has to be an ethnic studies course that conforms to what the University of California faculty six-person working group wants to see. And interestingly enough, this liberated ethnic studies curriculum is now being adopted in many school districts in California, and they're getting paid a lot of money for training and so forth. And it's been adopted by the Salinas School District. Uh, Salinas is a agricultural community. I grew up not too far from there. It is a poor community. Getting a quality education <clears throat> is really the way out for these kids. So, and it's, it's, it's a very heavily Hispanic district. So a bunch of Hispanic kids are taking these classes in ethnic studies and over half are failing the class. They simply can't connect with ideas such as intersectionality, uh, white fragility, marginalization. This is off their radar screens. These are kids who are working, helping their families. They wanna, be, they wanna understand math and science. They want to be competitive to get into a good college. And when asked to pick different colors of yarn to represent all the different facets of of how, of how much bias there could be in a society, they're asking those school administrators, hey, why do I have to take this class? This isn't really helping me out. So ironically, it's, it's politically correct today to talk about issues such as white supremacy, white privilege. Um, but what this really showcases is the privilege of tenured faculty who have the time to design these types of mind games about how many biases are there and how many biases can you count in your life and how marginalized do you think you are? Hey, these kids, they wanna get an education, they wanna go to college, they wanna get a good, good ending job. They don't wanna spend their time doing this stuff. Um, so it's really a, it's a, it's a reversal on what California wanted to do back to an incredibly divisive and, uh, and biased approach to teaching. So it's, a, so it's a big disappointment, in my opinion. Yeah. Now, this is not something driven by the governor's office. It's not something the governor can kill on his own. But here's what I contend, Lee and Jonathan. Newsom's kind of uniquely positioned to get into this conversation in this regard. He has kids. He has very young kids, which is rare for a California governor, by the way, rare for a lot of American presidents, too. So he could easily step in this and say, wait a second, what does this have to do with, with what our kids are learning in school right now in terms of making them ready for college, in terms of making them ready to succeed in life? Because I think, again, this gets to the part of the underbelly of why Californians think you know, the state's on the wrong track. You look at the numbers coming out of public schools in Los Angeles County or Oakland uh, here in the Bay Area, and what's going on is just a human tragedy in terms of kids just are not learning the way they should. So it'd be a chance for Newsom to step in and say that, hey, I get it. I see what's wrong with our schools right now, and I want to I want to do better. It'd be heavy on symbolism, but here's the problem. I guess he does not want to offend the woke left. So again, I, I read something like this with great fascination, Lee, because you kind of want to shake your head and say, well, okay, I guess this is California. But I just think a governor with a considerable bully pulpit could step in here and say, you know, this is just kind of nonsensical. And the counter to this would be Ron DeSantis in Florida, who is now caught up in a controversy over a bill he signed, uh, which has to do with uh, teaching sex education to uh, kids in K through three, just saying, 
we shouldn't be doing this to kids at this level. And I know he's catching all kinds of hell from Disney and the like for this. The left is going crazy on this, but I would just wager dollars to donuts that if you pull the American public on this and ask them, do you think kids should be taught sex ed in K through three? I would guess a majority of Americans would probably say no. Exactly, exactly. This would have been a great opportunity for Newsom to really show some political leadership and to really do what any common sense thinker would understand, um, which is, hey, the schools, the, you know, we're not delivering a quality education. And what we're doing right now with Thessic studies is not going to help. He could he could have he could have provided some leadership here and said, hey, you know what? Let's do we can do better than this. But Bill, you're right. He doesn't want to offend the woke left. Um, And they're worth a lot of money. Um, And, you know, at some level, at some point, you have to ask yourself, you know what, I'm going to have to go to bed tonight. And I'm going to go to bed knowing that there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids that are going to be damned to a career that will not allow them to access STEM jobs, mathematics jobs, scientific jobs accounting jobs, actuarial jobs, where you have to be somewhat competent in the application of mathematics or science, or the ability to think linearly and critically, which math and science help you do as a byproduct. 15% of Hispanic kids and black kids, only 15% are competent in math and science. And you know, and that's, that's, that's a tragedy. It is a tragedy. It doesn't have to be that way. We can change it. And yet the left is highly resistant to the changes that would need be would, that would have to be made, such as reforms to unionization, reform to teacher tenure, um, uh, advancing school choice, mm-hmm. which interestingly enough, Bill Clinton talked about in his State of the Union address back in uh, 96 or 97. Right. Um, so again, you know, just generation after generation of kids, particularly from poor families, minority families, are going to be looking at a career where a lot of avenues, high paying avenues are going to be cut off. So it's, yep. uh, it's very sad. Let me throw in my obligatory uh, call for reforming uh, statewide offices in California, because in theory, the head of education in California, it's not the governor so much. It's the superintendent of public instruction, the SPI. This is a supposedly independent job uh, elected by voters. But the fact is the SPI is invariably a Democrat. The SPI, SPI invariably lives in fear of offending the California Teachers Association. The superintendent of public instruction will be mostly missing in action on this conversation. My contention would be that if you got rid of that office, uh, first of all, nobody would notice the difference. But second, you would then create a much high pro, higher profile education secretary for the governor. Lee and Jonathan, I think this issue would thus land more in the governor's lap because of the education secretary rather than having this, this uh, constitutional office where you can just kind of slough it off. So that's that's my cheap fix for this problem. Yeah, yeah a great idea. And uh, and back, I believe it was in um, in 18. So I think, Bill, you're referring to Tony Thurmond. Tony Thurmond is a uh, state assemblyman, I believe, when he ran for the office. Yeah, that's right. And interestingly enough, in that 2018 election, his opponent was another Democrat. So, you know, we can have two, you know, in this state, we'll often have two Democrat finalists uh, running for office. Um, that was Marshall and, Tuck, wasn't it? And it, yep, yep, exactly. Marshall Tuck, Democrat versus Tony Thurman, Democrat. Marshall Tuck was a reformer. Right. He wanted to modify teacher tenure. He wanted to do a lot of good things that teachers would like, such as increasing pay and compensation, 
to work in some of the is to work in schools in some of the poorest district. Um, uh, increasing additional training uh, for teachers um, so they can get better and so they don't get burned out and they can learn new things. Um, he had a track record of as running the Green Dot schools in Los Angeles in a in a in a deal he did with Antonio Villaraigosa back around I don't know 07, 08, mm -hmm. substantially improved school outcomes in those Green Dot schools. Uh, here's a guy that um, that looked like he was going to be he was going to be a great great leader, and they get to the 2018 state Democratic convention in late summer of 18, you know, a couple of months before the election. Marshall Tuck has five or 10 minutes to get up to the podium and talk about what he, what he wants to do if he was superintendent. He was shouted down with a chorus of booze. He was not able to get one word out. Right. So Bill, you're hundred percent right when it's <laughs> state school superintendent, their job, you know, their priority is not to offend the teachers unions, not to offend the party uh, and not to propose any type of reform. Uh, and again, it's this ironic, this ironic situation where Democratic Party says to poor voters, hey, you know what, we got your back, we're working for you, you know, trust us. And, you know, and, and at the same time, I mean, the fact that the school system remains as it does is really a knife in the back of those of those poor voters. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill, you also wrote about uh, education this week for California on your mind. Um, you wrote about how uh, the University of California, Berkeley, or the, I'm sorry, the California Supreme Court recently made a decision uh, to cut back enrollment at the University of California uh, at Berkeley because of the university's inability to provide enough on-campus housing. Um, there's a couple of ways that this could be resolved. Um, one, as you mentioned, uh, uh, UC Berkeley could take in fewer transfer students. Uh, it could also target out-of-state admissions and reduce those. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a third way. Could you explain that? Yeah, the third way would be, well, first, let's go back to the problem here. So Berkeley wants to uh, expand. It wants to build more housing for students. And so a neighborhood group sued them and sued them under a California law called SECA, which is the California Environmental Quality Act uh, signed by Ronald Reagan in 1970. And SECA started out with good intentions, but it's just uh, abused uh, in all sorts of ways. Unions use it to, um, uh, to threaten uh, developers and to give them more money or else they'll use SECA lawsuits to slow down uh, uh, development. Um, the right uses it sometimes to slow down things it doesn't like as well. Uh, basically, it's just a law that needs to be reformed and governors don't do it. So what I was getting at in the column was this, if Berkeley does have to cut back slots, um, the easiest cuts are going to be either, number one, as you mentioned, transfer students, uh, kids who aspire to go to the flagship in the UC system. Um, that just doesn't sound very fair because the idea is to dream and dream large as a learner. And so, you know, you're cutting off Berkeley to them. Uh, the other way to do it is to cut out uh, out-of-state transfers. Now you're getting into a monetary issue because if you look at tuition at UCs, um, there's a little magical stat, which is extra fee they charge for out-of-state, about $30,000 per student. It doubles tuition in the UCs. They don't want to lose that money. Um, the easiest fix here is to go after CEQA and try to reform that 1970 law. But herein lies the problem. Reagan signed it, and every governor since has tried to reform CEQA one way or another. Uh, they all take the hill. They all either die on the hill or quickly abandon the hill. Uh, most famously, Jerry Brown tried it in his second term as governor. Didn't get very far, and it just kind of 
throw up his hands in disgust. And now it lands in Gavin Newsom's lap. And this gets back, guys, to the 18-minute speech that should have had about 36 minutes on other topics, including the governor standing up, Lee and Jonathan, and saying that, look, what is going on in the city of Berkeley with this lawsuit is, in my opinion, an abomination. And Newsom did file an amicus brief, by the way, on behalf of UC and trying to stop this from happening. So he could have stood before the legislature and said, you know, enough is enough. We've got to fix CEQA and do it now. And in the past, the problem with uh, reforming CEQA has been it's very easy to say you're just doing this to line the pockets of developers and have them, you know, rape and pillage the land even more. So environmentalists get the ruckus up. But now it's a different conversation. When you're talking about compromising the quality of higher education in California, Lee, it's a very simple as a governor could have to say, hey, let's do it for the kids. Um, but again, the governor did not, you know, say a peep about CEQA in his speech. He is not apparently willing to go fight this fight. But boy, when you know a, a neighborhood group can really just kind of seriously mess up the best public university in California, I think Lee and Jonathan, you'd agree, we got a problem. Yes, yeah, a problem. And Bill, the, um, the neighborhood activist group, I think it's two people. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's just I think it's just, you know, two people with a lot of time on their hands um, uh, filing these lawsuits. And, you know, it raises so many, so many questions and it's very troubling. For example, you know, who owns Berkeley? Who makes right. decisions for the town of Berkeley? Is it these two people in this activist group? Because clearly anybody can file the sequel based, a sequel based but, but, lawsuit. But, but Lee, the people run. It's always been the People's Republic of Berkeley. So the answer is the people. people. <laughs> Yeah, the People's Republic of Berkeley. And, you know, one of the arguments used um, against bringing in more students into into uh, the university was that it would displace it would displace the homeless. <laughs> and, and so you just ask yourself, well, <laughs> anybody can come and be homeless in the city of Berkeley. I mean, this is just deeply this is just uh, uh, this is astounding. Uh, and I was happy to see the governor file an amicus brief, but there's a broader issue here, which is CEQA. The Lieutenant Governor, Eleni Kunalakis, uh, comes from a family of developers and she well understands um, that there needs to be reforms to this. But Bill, you're right, Democratic Party can't get away from the idea that um, it's gonna get lambasted by environmentalists for wanting to make any types of changes here. Everyone on both sides, everyone knows it's been grossly abused. Everyone knows that one of the big reasons why California development, whether it's building houses or building office buildings, is so expensive is because having to fight lawsuit after lawsuit based on CEQA, um, it's got to change. Uh, and again, this really needs to become a leadership issue. And you'd think that, hey, Newsom, you would think he would understand, hey, I can really move the needle on saving some money and getting new housing built. And I've got plenty of political cover. You can imagine him thinking, as you mentioned, Bill, I'm, I'm pretty safe. Right. <laughs> I'm pretty safe this year. Uh, I just survived that recall election. You know, take a chance um, and make some, you know, make some sensible decisions. And, you know, the old, the old saw about the omelet uh, applies here, but you know you can get most people to back you on this, and yet he's still dancing around it. Yeah, he filed that amicus brief. I'm glad he did. He said some good things about that, but it's a bigger issue. He knows it. I wish he would take a leadership position on this. If he forms a task force to look at this, I will throw up my hands and discuss because this is the mo of the administration. You see a problem, you form a task force. You mentioned this earlier, Lee. It's the devil's in the details, the devil's in the follow through, and the governor likes to give lip service to things, but 
this follow-up is atrocious because he does create these task force. And we've talked about it repeatedly on this podcast, the, the infamous Steyer task force on the economy, which went nowhere, just crashed and burned. Uh, he has a mechanism at his disposal, Lee and Jonathan. The governor can call for special sessions or extraordinary sessions of the legislature. And it's a very cool mechanism in this regard. He pins down the legislature for a brief period of time, and they can deal on only one topic or matters germane to that topic. So he could call it, he could do a special on electricity if he wanted to, but he could do an extraordinary session on sequel if he wanted to. Now, he would have to have a sequel bill probably drawn up in advance and probably talk to lawmakers ahead of time about what to do. But if he really wanted to showcase this and do it, that's how you would do it. But uh, he's just not apt to do that. And this is kind of the frustration I find with him. And I hope if he is reelected to a second term, he reconsiders the job in that regard, that he's going to have to take a few issues like this and really just focus an extraordinary session and force the legislature to act on them. Otherwise, we'll be talking about whoever replaces him in 2027, dealing with CEQA yet again. That's right. That's right. And Bill, interestingly, um, Larry Elder's main issue during the recall campaign um, was CEQA. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I advised him on some economic issues. He received input from other economists as well, and everybody spoke to him about the importance of CEQA. Mm -hmm. um, this was his issue number one, and I think, that was, I think that was a wise priority for him to have in terms of trying to make life better in California. Uh, and yet again, he was he was portrayed as a guy who was going to take away women's rights and who's going to expand white supremacy. Um, you know, ironically, these reforms just don't get to see the light of day. And Bill, I can't but help that um, to think, you know, back in the day um, on the Democratic side, on the Republican side, that you know, the hornet's nest wouldn't just continue to live above the front door, that the hornet's nest would get taken down. And there are so many modifications to CEQA that literally no one could reasonably object to, such as transparency. Right now, right now, one can file an environmentally-based lawsuit, and you need to kind of come up with some catchy title for your organization, such as Friends of the Mountain or Friends of the River, or friends of the snail darter fish. Um, and about 80% of CEQA-based lawsuits are filed by organizations that have no history or background whatsoever in environmental causes. These are just shell companies that are standing in front of other types of interests. Um, so who would, who, who would be upset with, hey, we're gonna reform CEQA and make sure there's transparency and we know who's filing the lawsuit. Who would object to that? Who would object to not filing the same lawsuit time and time again? And under, with CEQA, you can file duplicative lawsuits. You know, let's eliminate that. Once the lawsuit's been adjudicated, then, that, then that's it. But under CEQA, you can file it time and time again. Um, so there's a lot of just low-hanging fruit there that Newsom could really take a victory lap and say, hey, look at, look at the great changes we made. These don't impact whatsoever legitimate environmental causes but this will stop a lot of the abuses. He can take a couple of victory laps on that. Um, interesting that he doesn't. Again, I just, I worry that at the end of the day, he doesn't have the leadership capability or interest that you'd like to see in, in someone governing California. 
Yeah, and there's a great contrast to this story. Um, so here is Berkeley being bogged down now by CEQA and having to maybe look back to reduce. And I think they have to cut back about 3,000 uh, slots in the class, which That's means right. probably denying about 5,000 kids admission altogether. Uh, but not too far from Berkeley is Oakland. And in Oakland, there's a part of the town called the Howard Terminal, where the Oakland Athletics desperately want to build a waterfront ballpark. They uh, In December, they filed uh, an environmental um, review, which is the first step in getting through the CEQA uh, dance. Mark my words, gentlemen, if lawmakers in Oakland want this to happen, um, they will do magical things to get around sequel. We've seen this happen, for example, the uh, the uh, Clippers Arena in uh, Inglewood, closer to home for you, Lee. They did all kinds of fancy ways to get around sequel to get that thing fast-tracked. They'll probably do the same for the Oakland ballpark if they want to save the A. So not to get on my soapbox here or sound like a bleeding heart here, but again, the state's got to kind of reassess its priorities. If you're allowing a law to be pernicious and as, as it pertains to public education, but you're kind of you know blowing through it to help the sport of baseball, you know, clubs owned by millionaires and billionaires, ultimately, again, we got to kind of reassess our values, I think. Yeah, yeah. The Clippers Stadium was fast-tracked. Uh, the state legislature has an ability to do that. So Steve Ballmer and, you know, endless deep pockets and the Clippers got that. The Sacramento Kings, um, right right next to our capital, they got fast-tracked. And Bill, uh, 100%, if the A's, if Oakland wants this done, it will get, it will get fast-tracked. And again, I you know, the, the, the idea that, um, you know, the elites uh, play by a different set of rules, um, hey, that, that, that is coming across, um, you know, so heavily here. Uh, yeah. And again, in, in, a, in, a, in a political party that advertises itself as being for progressives, being for the little person, um, having the backs of those who otherwise are very vulnerable, um, no, it's, yeah. it's politics as usual. And it's, uh, it's a shame. It's a shame that the law is applied so so differently depending on the situation. Anybody who knows me, Lee and Jonathan, knows that I live and breathe baseball, so I don't take that lightly. I want to see the A's ballpark get built because I'm selfish. I'd love to have two ballparks near me. But again, it's just kind of a question of how the law is being used and if it kind of benefits what is, for lack of a better word, a corporation, a business entity versus a, versus a public university. Again, we've got to revisit the law. I mean, I want to get into the um, some of the implications of the uh, Russia-Ukrainian war on the state of uh, California. Um, the market we're in the 13th day of the war, and there's been a lot of market volatility. Uh, on the day of uh, Governor Newsom's State of the State speech, uh, the Nasdaq actually um, entered into a bear uh, territory. Ali, could you maybe talk about how um, how the current market conditions might affect the revised state budget in May, and how does that underscore um, the fact that um, the, the the state's budget is uh, connected to uh, market activity. Yeah. Um, well, Jonathan, California, I think probably almost more than any other state relies on tax revenues coming from, I mean, not just the top 1%, but being the, I mean, the top one-tenth of 1%. So we've got a few thousand people in the state um, paying well in excess of a million dollars in state income taxes. And a lot of that tax revenue is coming from capital gains. So these are on the, uh, the sales of assets such as stocks. And one reason the budget has been uh, bringing in so much revenue the last couple of years is because the stock market has just been going nuts um, up until recently. And a lot of capital gains are being realized and there's no capital gains tax rate in California. Capital gains are taxes, ordinary income. So 
So millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars are flowing into the state budget coffers. Um, I did a calculation that suggested um, as much as 25 to 30 percent of personal income tax revenues coming from the top one-tenth of one percent. So that gives you an idea of what's going on here. And of course, if the stock, you know, stock market right now is incredibly volatile, you know, down, down 1% one day, up 1% the next day. But on average, it's down compared to where it was uh, a month or so ago. And what that means is fewer capital gains realizations potentially. And what that means is lower revenue coming into the state. And what that means is, you know, Governor Newsom can't walk around with fistfuls of dollars and saying, hey, you know what, here, here's some for you, here's some for you, here's some for you. So this could, you know, depending upon what happens with the war and what happens with uh, the stock market, both you know, very, very uncertain events, um, this could have very, very negative implications for the state and its budget. Yeah, and I build on that just also inflation and gasoline prices, which raises the question of overall economic activity, Lee. For example, are people going to keep buying if their dollar doesn't go as far? Are we going to see hoarding start to occur where people go to Costco's and so forth and start buying six months worth of supplies as opposed to going out more often shopping? And why does that matter? Because maybe you go out and you do regular grocery shopping and say, hey, let's go over to the mall and you start buying there. That keeps the economy moving. In terms of gasoline prices, what happens to vacations this summer, Lee? Are families going to still get in the car and go drive? driving around California, or they're going to decide that, no, I can't afford to spend 75 bucks to fill up. So it does have these ramifications. Lee, can you repeat that statistic about taxpayers? Because I believe that what the top one, what the top 1% in Californians uh, taxpayers, what account for half of uh, revenue, but then you have another stat in terms of, you know, in terms of further uh, defining that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So the top 1% indeed are responsible for about 50%, maybe a little bit more than 50% of personal income tax revenue. Right. I've estimated the top one-tenth of 1% is around 25 to 30%. So this is just, you know, comparatively speaking, um, a handful of taxpayers <clears throat> that each are paying just enormous amounts, right. enormous amounts of taxes. And a lot of that it's not coming from wage income. It's coming from realizations of capital gains on stocks and also when they sell privately held businesses. Um, and this is very, this is obviously very vulnerable to the ways of the stock market. And our colleague, Michael Boskin, um, former advisor to Governor Schwarzenegger, uh, chair of the Council of Economic Advisors for uh, George Bush Sr., has often talked about the importance of trying to get away from that dependence of the state budget because it puts us on a roller coaster. During flush stock market years, the budget swells. During down years, when the market is down, when the economy is down, Bill, as you just noted, then the budget goes in the tank. And um, it's just not good economics, not good policy to be on such a roller coaster fiscal policy. So quickly, Lee, since we have only a couple minutes here before, before we uh, break, um, how would you wean California off being dependent upon that 1% and that sliver of the 1%? Yeah. So you want, you know, kind of the standards of public finance uh, within economics is you want to get tax revenue from stable sources, not highly volatile sources like capital gains. Mm -hmm. So what one can do is expand the uh, expand the base of tax collection. Uh, it would make economic sense to apply some taxes to services, which right now are not taxed. Um, if People are really worried about that being regressive tax. We can expand earned income tax credit, but 
consumption-based taxes are the way to go if you want a stable revenue source. Mm -hmm. Put it slightly differently, virtually all of Western and Northern Europe, which taxes economic activity much more heavily than we do, they have much more efficient tax systems because they are based on value-added type taxes uh, or sales taxes as opposed to what we're getting. So value-added tax, uh, taxing services, that would be much more preferable than taxing capital gains. Um, and again, you can do some offsets, try to uh, modify the regressivity or the impact or the higher, higher impact of tax payments on poor families. Right. So if there were a Wayland administration and I were governor of California, and boy, I'd be like Zelensky living under fire day in and day out trying to survive in Sacramento, uh, I would call a special session. And you know what I'd do, Lee? I'd put into play the Parsky Commission report, which our, which our colleague Mike Boskin was a part of and also John Kogan. What does the Parsky Commission do? It looked at California's revenue system. It looked at the economy and came up with ways to change the tax system. And so it's a very frustrating thing. I find it's uh, there is a ready-made document from the legislature of the governor to look at, but they will not touch that thing. No, no, that was a great report. Um, Boston and Kogan wrote, wrote a great report and um, a ton of great recommendations in there that now is just sitting in a desk drawer getting dusty, but you know, we could have such a much better economy for everyone, for everyone, including, including the poorest households if we moved in that direction. Well, as usual, gentlemen, this has been very interesting and time, timely analysis. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Jonathan. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is his handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. And Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore O'Hanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also, check out California on Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Fortis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.